You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even not, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we hope in Christ. We're of all people most to be pitied. But thanks be to God, he has been raised. You can be seated. Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? (laughs) I am always drawn to this chapter at Easter. In fact, Chris reminded me when we began to plan for Easter this year, I said, I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians 15. And Chris said, you've preached from 1 Corinthians 15 the last two years. I was like, no way. I have no memory of that. But man, it hits me like brand new information every time. Nobody helps us make sense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ quite like Paul. He challenges us to think, to really think about what we believe about this whole gospel message. Was Jesus resurrected from the dead? Can that even happen? Is it something we can hope for too, like we can hope for too? Does does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ make a difference to 21st century me? And if it does, then how? So there's a word that's become kind of trendy um, in the last few years. If you were around here last fall, you might remember we talked about it some. Deconstruction is the process of testing the foundation. It's what, it's what Thomas did. Thomas, do you remember the doubting disciple? When he, when he questioned Jesus' resurrection, do you remember that story I believe Thomas was in search of something immovable that he could slam his doubts up against. So when he told his friends, I'm not interested in what you think you saw or heard, because frankly, you guys haven't been the brightest bulbs on this journey with Jesus. No, I want my own firsthand experience. I want to know this thing we've been preaching is solid, and I want the kind of evidence that doesn't move when you push up against it, that doesn't wobble when my faith falters. I think that's what Thomas wanted, to be able to push up against the whole idea of the resurrected Jesus who conquered death and proved himself greater than the power of sin. So when Thomas said, John chapter 20, verse 25, 
I'll believe it when I see the marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side. Until then, I will not believe. Thomas actually said that. He said, until then, I will not believe. Let that comfort you the next time your faith falters. Thomas wasn't trying to be a rebel. He wasn't looking facts in the face and refusing them. He just wanted something he could slam his doubts into. So he tested Jesus and he found, them to be, he found Jesus to be solid. Put your finger here, Jesus told Thomas when they were finally together after the resurrection. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And I can hear Thomas saying right then, no, I'm good. <laughs> Stop doubting and believe. Thomas's story is a deconstruction story. He found Jesus to be worth a total reorientation of worldview. This is what deconstruction does. And it usually comes to us, like it did with Thomas, when a drastic event causes us to rethink the meaning of life. It's what happens when you go through something like divorce or a really bad illness or some traumatic loss. They call that thing, that moment or event, they call that a liminal moment or a liminal event. And a liminal experience will cause us to rethink things. What do I actually believe? Does what I believe fit into this thing I'm experiencing? And what do I actually care about? And if your liminal experience shakes your faith, you might find yourself asking, does, does, what does Jesus care about? And do I have the same values as, as the real Jesus? That can be a scary moment. What if I come to the other side of these kinds of things and I'm changed? That can feel dangerous. It can also be good. But deconstruction all by itself is only half the story. I heard someone say that deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. Destruction, deconstruction by itself won't get us where we need to, to go. So in other words, after every winter, there has to be a spring. <laughs> And hear this, after every death, there has to be a resurrection. Deconstruction and reconstruction, which are things people have talked about, especially in and around and after the pandemic, that's really just a 21st century way of talking about death and resurrection. And I'm telling you all of this because that's what we just heard in Nathan Mills' story. We got to hear how it works in real life. Nathan's was not the drug and wild living story of radical surrender and salvation. And it wasn't a story of somebody coming to Christ freshly as an adult. But still, Nathan's story is also a classic tale of death and resurrection. After experiencing the burden of legalism for most of his Christian life, do you remember he said, all my self-effort was reaping a weakened spirit, weakened relationships, and a growing resentment toward God. Anybody in here want to go ahead and amen right now? After that, God intervened and showed him what needed to die so he could walk him into grace. <laughs> where his faith could be resurrected. 
And once he deconstructed that heavy if-then worldview, that transactional God worldview, he was able to let God reconstruct on that foundation of grace a worldview that holds passion and prayer and intention and energy. So here's the point. It's not that deconstruction is a great idea, not by itself, but that without reconstruction, without resurrection, we've only done half the work. You can't just get mad and go home. <laughs> we have to get mad, go, go home, find our tomb, sit in it, and let the resurrected Christ walk us out of it. Amen. Deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. Death without resurrection is worthless, or worse, death-giving. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to say to, in his letter to the Corinthian church. He tells us, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is, in, is useless, and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most to be pitied. And we would look pretty silly in here right now if, if, if Christ has not been raised. We would look even sillier at 7 o'clock in the morning in the rain if Christ had not been raised. Can I take a side note here and say thank you for your patience this morning at the sunrise uh, wanted to, would-be service. Um, I, I want to just shout out to the Columbia County Events Office. Those are the kindest people. They were there at 445 helping us figure out what was possible. And Rob Boggs, uh, sound guys... The kindest people in the world. So much grace. So much kindness. So I just need to shout out for them. But this is what Paul is trying to say. Paul, the, the brilliant Jewish scholar who lived his faith radically all the way out to the edge. He discovered something common to all human experience. And it is that without resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then all the faith in the world is useless because it means we are still, listen to me, it means we are still dead in our sins. Which is to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story of God's promises to his people, which means the whole story from beginning to end all the way through is about God's power over death and everything that breeds death. Without the second half of the story, without a resurrection, we've got nothing. Paul says, if only for this life we hope in Christ, we are the most to be pitied. And he's right. If all we know for certain is that death will get us all eventually, then we have nothing. Remember, deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. If there's no objective truth beyond us. If there's no meaning beyond what I make for myself, if there's no value beyond what I produce, then belief in anything about, uh, beyond us is absurd. And we think, well, that's not me, <laughs> unless it is. Because we all do it. It can happen anytime. We downplay the power of God to transform our circumstances. It's what Nathan said. I mean, we, we let God do things, but then we take the credit. 
So we pray, but then we stand up from our prayers and we begin to look for our own solutions. We, we run from one thing to the next, from one answer to the next, from one relationship to the next, from one job to the next, even from one church to the next, pursuing things that have no power to satisfy because we think that if our mess is going to get fixed, it'll be on us to figure it out. So we try something, we move on. We try something else, we move on again. Nothing works. Maybe not every time, but often when we do this, it's because we don't trust the power of God. We struggle to wait on God because we don't really believe, we don't really trust that he might move in our circumstances. or We don't believe he really has a big picture vision. And so we find it difficult to live into that daily surrender that a life with Christ calls us to. That's one mistake we make. Another mistake we make is making Jesus so personal that we miss his majesty. You know, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my bumper sticker and my t-shirt and my five-minute devotional. And, and, and these things are great, but they can have the effect of minimizing the cosmic power of Christ. His power over darkness, over evil, over nations, and whole systems. You get it, right? Jesus is bigger than your t-shirt. When Jesus gets reduced to a meme, we can forget his ability to raise up dead things and forgive sin and restore the world to its created design. And without the daily surrender to a personal God and the awe and worship of a powerful God, we are left in a hopeless world. Parker Palmer calls this functional atheism. The belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with me. Where's the hope in that? Do you remember Job's story? That guy in the Old Testament who was tested by the devil, he really went through it. It, it. So many hard things happened to him, and so much got deconstructed in the process. And in the middle of the worst of it, he asked, if the only home I hope for is the grave, then where is my hope? That's exactly what Paul wants every one of us to get to before we begin to reconstruct. He wants us to deconstruct our fallen desire to do it ourselves, to control our own narrative, or to use Jesus only for the parts of him that conveniently keep us comfortable. George MacDonald was a Scottish uh, writer and he lived in the 1800s. He was a poet. He wrote fantasy books. And he was also a, a preacher and a Christian. And one of his fairy tales was called The Golden Key. It's a story of a quest. Not to find a golden key, but to find the door that that golden key fits into. So there's two characters in the story that have found this golden key. And now they're on the quest to find the, the, the door that the key unlocks. And in the story, the key is Christ. And it opens all the doors. And the moral is that this key has already been given to all of us. We just have to know that this key, Christ, that, that is, the, is, the, is the key that unlocks the door to meaning, of redemption, unlocks the door of purpose. In some ways, Peter Kreeft says this, that the story of the golden key is almost backwards. Jesus is not 
just the key that opens the door, but actually the thing we walk into when the door gets opened. In other words, Christ is our life. Kreef says, if your life is Christ, listen to this. If your life is Christ, then your death will be more Christ. If your life is Christlessness, then your death will be Christlessness, more Christlessness. That's the law of non-contradiction, he says. And so the hope is not that Jesus is alive and living someplace and I get to go live with him if I just get my key to fit the right door, but that Jesus is the whole future of me. Do you hear me? Of everything. He is the key, he's the door, and he's everything that gets locked, unlocked beyond it. Jesus is the whole future of me. Jesus is the whole future of you. You need to turn to somebody right now and say, Jesus is the whole future of me. And Paul tells us just this. I want you to listen. Verse 20. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There it is. In Christ all will be made alive. All of it is made of alive. In Christ is our life. He's not just the key that unlocks the door. He is the door and the room on the other side. His story of death and resurrections, resurrection reconstructs our deconstructed tangle of a life. His life gives our life meaning, love, and flourishing. And he doesn't just give life. He is life. John writes, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do you remember what we just said? When I, if, if your life is in Christ, your death will only be more of Christ. If your life is Christlessness, your death will only be more Christlessness. This is exactly what John says to us. Christ is your life, not your stuff, not your job, not your people, not your education. Christ is your life. So when Paul goes on to say that one day the end will come, he's not saying everything's going to fall apart eventually, that the sinner can't hold forever. No, he's saying actually that death will be defeated and that all will be left. The only thing left will be resurrection, <laughs> life. If your life is in Christ, your death will be more Christ because of the resurrection. It's what makes today worth it. All right, let's look at the last lines of this teaching from Paul, verse 24. He says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear this doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. 
When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. (laughs) The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What the enemy of God has wanted all along was to deconstruct everything God has constructed. And we thought this was some trendy 21st century term that people made up. This has been the enemy's plan all along. To deconstruct everything God has constructed. To leave the world in chaos. To leave not the fullness of life, but a void. So when we say that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, what we're really saying is that resurrection wins. That out of a fallen, disordered world, God is reconstructing creation as it was intended. The story of Jesus is the ultimate deconstruction, reconstruction drama. Death, which sure seems like an all-consuming end, becomes the gateway to more life. Sin, which sure seems like a relentless and hopeless power, has all its power sapped. And Jesus, the man on the cross, becomes the victor. Come on, (laughs) y'all. Joshua McNall has written a book, a really great book called How Jesus Saves. If there's anybody in this room who's making a decision to bring your life back under the care of Jesus today, I want to give you one of these books before you leave. It's a great book. In it, he talks about what may have been the very first picture drawn of the crucifixion. It was graffiti. It was drawn on the wall of a school building. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I, don't, I bet you can't see anything in that, can you? No, but there it is. And if you look close to it, um, you'll, you'll see it. It's... it's, um, it's It's a cross, and there's somebody standing near it. There's a cross, and there's somebody on it, and there's somebody standing near it. We know because of what's scrawled at the bottom that the guy standing next to the cross is a man, is a boy, probably a boy, named Alex Amanos, and he's worshiping the one on the cross. It's not a flattering depiction of Jesus. It's actually someone making fun of someone else. If you could see it clearly, you'd see that actually the person on the cross has the head of a donkey. And the words, which are in Aramaic, say, Alex Amanos worships his God. The message is that anyone who worships a crucified God has something in common with a donkey. But what that middle schooler who drew this didn't know about Alex or his God was the brilliance of the cross. (laughs) Yep, I mean, our own Bible says it looks foolish. It looks like death. But this was a snatching victory from the jaws of defeat move. (laughs) Paul tells the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins, when you were at the limit, at the end, when it looked, when you looked like you were wearing a donkey's head, and some of you have looked like that, (laughs) God made you alive in Christ. 
He, he forgave us all our sins. This is Paul. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Amen. There's your spectacle. It's not the guy on the cross. It's his enemy. It's the total defeat of sin and death. Everything now under the lordship of Christ. So McNall, the writer of this book, says, Jesus' faithful life and sacrificial blood bring the defeat of Satan because they remove his ability to call for still more judgment on Christ's body, which is us. This matters for the way you view your past, your present, and your future your sin is serious, make no mistake about it. But you don't have to listen to the accusatory voice when it says you've gone too far to be forgiven. The conviction Satan calls for has already been served. And if you give your allegiance to King Jesus, then the Spirit now dwells in you, testifying that you are God's beloved child. What's more, this same Spirit is working to transform you on the path of holiness. Christ, the victor, is the last, speaks the last word. And so the writer of Revelation can give us a better image than some schoolyard graffiti. He gives us the image of Christ, Christ the victor over Satan, sin, and death. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. I need you to stand up right now. I can't say rejoice while people are sitting. <laughs> Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who, who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is, yeah, come on. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Whew. So what will you do with the resurrection of Jesus? I actually like the idea of deconstruction and reconstruction. And I'm grateful it's found a place in our post-pandemic, post-Christian culture. I like it because it's really just a reframing of the gospel story. Death and resurrection and the gospel offer to let, to let go of all that breeds death and build a life that breeds more life. So brothers and sisters, you're broken and you probably don't need somebody telling you that. You can't fix yourself. It's not the best part of the news. You need 
and probably want someone who has the power to change your circumstances. Jesus Christ is the only one in all of history who has proven powerful enough to offer authentic transformation. And that's because he's God. Because he has conquered both sin and death. Making a decision to let Jesus change your life happens with a simple invitation to him to come and do what only he can do. Only Jesus, only Jesus can give your life purpose, love, and flourishing. And placing your trust in him means that real and lasting life, now and after death, begins now. It begins with your decision to die to your life and let Christ become your better life. So I'm going to ask you if you would right now, bow your head, close your eyes. And I just, I wonder today, it feels to me that the, it seems to me that the call on us today is to consider where we are functioning like practical atheists, letting Jesus occupy the comfortable places while we control the rest. Is there someone in here who needs to repent of that? Who needs to say to Jesus, I have been striving. I've been trying too hard, and it's gotten me nowhere. And what it's, what it's caused is weakened relationships, weakened spirit, weakened faith, weakened sense of who I am and where I'm headed. I have wanted a future without recognizing that Jesus is my future. I wonder if there's someone in here just needs to say that prayer. Jesus, I am. I'm the one. I'm the one they're talking about this morning. I'm the one who's striving. I'm the one who's trying too hard. I'm the one who is holding on with both hands to something that I don't even trust anymore. And I wonder if that's you, if you would just hold your hands out, palms up, hands open. Say, here, God, here it is. Here's my life. Here are my circumstances. Here's my striving. Here's my trying too hard. Here's me, God, dumbing you down, reducing you to a a meme or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker and, and not acknowledging the, the cosmic power of you. This is me. Lord, if you would accept me, if you would receive me in this state, then I offer myself to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, We'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.